Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be continuing our chat about the history of flight, picking up from where we left off last week at the turn of the 20th century. Now, I want to address I want to address this right away because I have kind of stuffed things up a little bit here and I want to explain what's going on. When I was planning out this topic and, and reading about stuff, um, I went through and I sort of divvied up the timeline of the history of flight between two episodes, right? I thought that there would be a neat division uh, between the 19th and the 20th centuries. That would serve as like a you know, kind of break point for two episodes. But then I went and wrote out this episode and realized that there is way, way more stuff that I want to talk about with heavier than air travel, um, both in general, but also before the 20th century. So we sort of threw that break point out the window. And once I got into that, well, look, long story short, there is going to have to be a part three. Uh, Fundamentally, and in contravention of one of the core tenets of this podcast, I mean, it's right there in the name of the show. I just didn't want to half-ass this topic. There is so much about aviation that is so interesting, so important. And even at the uh, the reasonably quick pace that we take in this episode, getting through the lead-up to successful heavier-than-air flight, the, the people who first made it happen, how it then spread around the world both before, during, and after the First World War, this episode ended up being very long. Uh, and next week's, I can tell you, is, uh, is going to be about the same length. So apologies to those who were hoping that this topic would be wrapped up neatly this week. Uh, but we are going to have to have a third part on the history of flight. And look, maybe you're a fan of this. Maybe you like long episodes. Maybe you like me going into detail about stuff. And that's if if that's the case, you're bloody welcome. Um, but when it comes down to it, I just didn't want to leave stuff out. And I can tell you, I already do feel like I have had to leave stuff out with these episodes, as lengthy as they are. Anyway, we can uh, we can get stuck in here to part number two. Uh, as ever, it's probably a good episode to go back and listen to part number one, get across what we talked about last week, if you haven't already. Uh, if nothing else, you'll enjoy stories of foolishly optimistic blokes throwing themselves from high places with wings glued to them like a modern-day Icarus. Uh, and many of them, as we talked about, were about as successful as Icarus ultimately was. Uh, although, as the years pass, this changed. We talked last week about lighter-than-air aviation, using things like ballooning uh, and ultimately airships to take to the sky. Um, and we will talk a little bit about lighter-than-air flight today as well. It's not going to take up much of the episode, but we'll, we'll get across a little bit here um, because for the most part, aviation in the 20th century was, devi- was defined by heavier-than-air flight. In fact, I think it's fair to say that flight was one of the most important and defining technologies of the 20th century, rivaled perhaps only really by, geez, what, I guess like nuclear power, I suppose, and oh, and cars, obviously, um, and, and, oh, and TV and radio, of course, and, uh, and, antibi- and antibiotics um, and refrigeration and plastics and uh, I guess also computing and the internet. Geez, we got... We got a lot done in the 20th century, didn't we? Anyway, flight is right up there in more ways than one, I suppose. Uh, and today we're going to talk about our transition from balloons and airships to the precursors of the aeroplanes that zip around the world today. We'll talk about the people who first attempted to build heavier than aircraft, their trials and tribulations, their successes and triumphs, 
Um, and then we'll move through the pioneer era into the First World War, talk about how aviation began to play a significant role in conflict, you know, finding its place in warfare, a place that still obviously occupies today. And then we'll talk about the interwar period, the work that was done to pave the way for large-scale commercial air travel, the, the, the sort of air travel that is a huge part of day, today's world. And then one last time, we'll chat about lighter-than-air flight and the catastrophe that resulted in its ultimate downfall. So despite only really kind of cover, covering aviation between 1900 and 1939 today, we still have so much to get across. Uh, apologies once again for carving this topic up into three parts, but so much interesting stuff to talk about. So let's get to it. Here, off we go. Going off on our second part of our rundown of the history of flight. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back, not to the turn of the 20th century, as I promised. I think within this episode... Uh, no, we're going to break that promise and head back to the beginning of the 19th century, 100 years earlier, to talk about what ultimately led to the development of the modern aeroplane. Now, last week we talked about some rudimentary flying machines, ornithopters, gliders, that sort of thing. And while some people did stage successful heavier-than-air flights with contraptions like these, uh, they tended to be very short flights in both duration and distance and also tended to be very dangerous flights as well. So instead, we will start our story uh, not talking about ornithopters and gliders and whatever else. We'll start our story talking about a fella, an English bloke named Sir George Cayley, who is sometimes referred to as the father of the aeroplane. And the reason for this is all of the enormously important research that he did into aeronautics, which is the, the study of flight from a, from a scientific perspective. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Cayley laid down many of the fundamental theoretical aspects of heavier-than-air flight. He understood drag and lift, aerodynamics and streamlining, curved wing surfaces, power-to-weight ratios, and so much more. In 1799, he laid out the basic design of essentially what is a successful heavier-than-air flying machine. Wings attached to a central fuselage, the tail at the end, and this, even today, is how most modern planes are still designed. Cayley is a very sadly overlooked figure in the history of aviation because he didn't actually manage to get us in the air in any meaningful way on a practical level. He did build a few prototypes with, no, I don't know, model gliders and stuff like that, but and, and, they, and they flew with moderate success. But most of his contrib contributions to the history of aviation, the significant ones at least, were theoretical rather than practical and therefore much easier to overlook because he didn't build, you know, great, big, exciting flying machines. So a moment, please, to recognise Sir George Cayley, one of the very first invest investigators into modern heavier-than-air aviation, perhaps the first bloke in history to gain a proper understanding of the most fundamental principles of flight. And Cayley's research paved the way for a new generation of aviation pioneers to put these principles into practice. The back half of the 19th century saw all manner of heavier-than-air designs begin to emerge, including the bloke who staged the first ever successful powered heavier-than-air flight, a bloke named John Stringfellow. And you might be going, whoa, whoa, hang on one second, what about the Wright brothers? Well, the Wright brothers are often given credit for the first ever flight, but you'll very quickly find when looking through aviation firsts that there are a whole lot of asterisks, a whole lot of terms and conditions apply whenever you're talking about any type of aviation first. The Wright brothers obviously were enormously important aviation pioneers, colossally important in the history of aviation, but we're still half a century away from them. In 1848, John Stringfellow flew a small steam-powered plane the staggering distance of, are you ready, 
three metres. But look, hey, still counts. And that distance only got bigger as time went on as and as he improved his designs. Now, the important thing to note about Stringfellow's planes is that they weren't carrying people. Not yet. But Stringfellow improved upon Cayley's work by discovering that longer and thinner wings are way better than shorter and stubbier ones. This is called the aspect ratio of a wing. It largely defines what type of aircraft an aircraft is based on its wings. An efficient but non-maneuverable craft like a glider will have wings with a very high aspect ratio, long and thin. Whereas a fighter jet, for instance, has short and wide wings, a low aspect ratio. Therefore, it is extremely nimble, but uses a lot more fuel to stay in the air. And Stringfellow figured this out. While he wasn't obviously building fighter jets, he was able to make early flying machines much more efficient by increasing the aspect ratio of his craft's wings. And Stringfellow, in turn was followed by plenty of other diligent and dedicated researchers and scientists and engineers and inventors, all of whom left their mark on the development of aviation and flight technology. France and Britain were the centre points of all of this research and testing. Both sides of the English Channel plane designs kept improving. For instance, in 1856, the French engineer Jean-Marie Labrie staged the first heavier-than-air flight that flew higher than the height at which it began its flight. That's a very complicated way to say, essentially, that... This aeroplane rose into the air, in other words, rather than just gliding at a downwards angle. Um, hilariously, by the way, Labrie's craft was, it was powered by something that we really haven't seen catch on in the world of aviation. It was pulled by a horse. This is not a method of locomotion that stuck around when it came to flight. We don't have horse-drawn... I mean, look, we've still got horse-drawn carriages, you know, still got them trotting around major cities every now and again or out in the countryside some places. But we never really had horse-drawn planes, uh, despite Labrie's best efforts. Anyway, in 1871, in his, in his spare time, English engineer Francis Herbert Wenham built the first ever wind tunnel in order to test his designs. This meant that, uh, you know, bits and pieces of an aeroplane, a wing or whatever else, could be tested in isolation in a controlled environment in, in a wind tunnel. Uh, he also might have been the first person to ever use the word aeroplane, Wenham, but... Uh, that's that's less certain. We're not 100% sure about that. But that same year, 1871, French engineer Alphonse Penor uh, successfully flew a craft that he designed around 40 metres. He called it the Planifore, and it was the best example yet of Cayley's ideas put into practice. Very aerodynamically stable and able to fly a quite large distance in those days of 40 metres. In 1874, French inventor Félix Dutemple de la Croix uh, staged the first ever powered glide of an aeroplane when his steam-powered craft took off, uh, took off from a ramp, glided from a bit, and then landed in one piece. But it is time now to meet another huge figure in the history of flight, someone who is also unfortunately rather overlooked, a bloke whose name was Otto Lilienthal from Germany. Lilienthal built on the work of people like Cayley and Wenham and all these others to design aircraft, gliders mostly, that marked in a very real sense the beginning of proper heavier-than-air flight. All the inventions and designs and models we've been talking about so far, they all lacked one critical attribute that has turned out to be very important in the history of aviation. Lilienthal's craft, on the other hand, had this attribute. And what is this attribute? Lilienthal's craft could, for the first time, reliably carry people. 
Many historians consider 1891 the year that Lilienthal began to test his designs in earnest. They consider this point at which human flight actually really began. Lilienthal did a lot of testing himself personally, uh, and public interest in his work grew very quickly indeed thanks to another marvel of the age, photography. Lilienthal was the first person ever to be photographed flying in a heavier-than-air craft, uh, and he, he made the most of the opportunities that photogra- photography presented to thoroughly document and, and, uh, and show off his work and progress. For five years, Lilienthal tested his craft, his models, his designs, uh, he built an artificial hill outside Berlin and jumped off it in his gliders. Uh, most of them look like what we would today call hang gliders. Uh, to begin with, he was gliding around 25 metres, so not too bad. But as the years passed, he increased that by an order of magnitude. His longest flight was around 250 metres. And he became very famous for his work in his time. Photographs of what he was doing travelled far and wide. But sadly, Lilienthal's efforts were cut short with his premature death. In the grand tradition of aviation pioneers everywhere from throughout the centuries, Lilienthal lost control of one of his gliders and he fell 15 metres to the ground and died of his injuries a short time later at the age of just 48. But his legacy lives on. Lilienthal essentially designed the modern aircraft wing and was absolutely instrumental in the work of other aviators, of whom there are so, so many. Australian inventor Lawrence Hargrave, for instance, he invented the box kite, and he realised that it could serve as the wing of an aircraft. In 1894, he stuck four of these kites together and put a seat between them, inventing what is essentially a biplane, and flew with it five metres into the air, the first person to generate lift with a heavier-than-air aircraft. And in 1896, American physicist Samuel Pierpont Langley pulled off another first, as Wikipedia puts it, the, are you ready? <clears throat> the first successful sustained flight of an unpiloted engine-driven heavier-than-aircraft of substantial size. So when I say there are a lot of uh, terms, and a lot of fine print when it comes to aviation first, you can see that it, it, it very much is true. And, you know, when we talk about even people as famous as the Wright brothers, right, it, it's not even as clear-cut as saying the Wright brothers were the first to the skies. All of these firsts, including theirs, were extremely conditional. And even then, it's not 100% certain that the Wright brothers were the first to make a sustained, controlled, powered, manned, heavier-than-air flight. Before we get on and talk about those two, I want you to meet uh, another bloke, a German fella named Gustava Whitehead. Uh, this bloke, he emigrated to the US in 1893, And he claimed to have staged a successful flight before the Wright brothers. According to Whitehead, he flew a steam-powered aeroplane in 1899, a number of years before the Wright brothers did. Uh, And after this flight, he says he was forbidden by the police from continuing his attempts uh, because this flight ended with him crashing into a building. So not many historians give credence to this claim made by Whitehead, but there are newspaper articles referring to a flight that he made in 1901, which is still a couple of years before the Wright brothers. According to an article published in the Bridgeport Herald newspaper, Whitehead flew a powered craft for around 800 metres at a height of 15 metres into the air and landed it safely. And Whitehead claims many more successful flights into 1902, some of them them over 10 kilometres in length, with witnesses signing affidavits that he did indeed make these flights as he claimed. Now, 
No photographs of these flights are known to exist, and outside of eyewitness testimony, the evidence for them is a little lacking, but the issue, to be honest with you, continues to be a little controversial uh, and is mired by things like a secret agreement between Orville Wright's estate and the Smithsonian Institution. This really doesn't reflect well on the Wright brothers and their claim to be the first in flight because the uh, so Orville Wright's estate uh, agreed to lend the Smithsonian, the Wright Flyer, a plane we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, on the strict and secret condition that the Smithsonian refused to recognise anyone other than the Wright brothers as being the first in flight. I did a lot of reading on Whitehead, and the fact of the matter is this. We just don't know. It is conceivable that Whitehead may have successfully flown before the Wright brothers, but it's not proven. There is very little hard evidence to support Whitehead's claims, but from a technical standpoint, Whitehead did seem to know what he was doing with the machines that he built. So look, I don't know. A cowardly position to take, to be sure, but a prudent one because I just don't know. One way or the other, if Whitehead did indeed beat the Wright brothers or not. But ultimately, as I'm sure you're aware, it is the Wright brothers who have walked away with the lion's share of the glory when it comes to flight. And we've talked about them a lot without actually addressing what they did. So now let's get to the story of the Wright brothers and discuss the people widely credited as being the first to successfully fly. Orville and Wilbur Wright were brothers, obviously, uh, a pair of American aviation pioneers who today, as as I've said, are widely recognised as being the first people to stage the first controlled and sustained flight with a powered, manned, heavier-than-air aircraft. Between 1898 and 1902, the Wright brothers worked on unpowered gliders, but then in 1902, they began to incorporate engines into their craft. And there, there are even suggestions that some of the uh, the pointers that they got in designing a powered craft came from Whitehead as well. So again, very controversial. But the Wright brothers certainly did things like improve wing designs. They worked on steerable rudders and they engineered the most efficient propellers that the world had yet seen. And all of their work culminated in what took place on the 17th of December, 1903, just south of the town of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, USA. The Wright brothers brought out their latest design, the Wright Flyer, on the sand at Kill Devil Hills, and they made a total of four successful flights in their new machine. And this, for most historians, marks the beginning of the age of aviation, as these flights were, as I've said, Sustained, controlled, manned, and powered. The first flight by Orville lasted about 12 seconds and only covered 37 metres. There is a photograph of this flight. You can see the flyer taking off from the rail uh, on which it was launched with, with Orville lying prone on the lower wing while Wilbur runs beside it. But as the first widely recognised, sustained, controlled, manned, powered, heavier-than-air flight, this was a monumental moment, not just in the history of aviation, but in human history. And the Wright brothers followed it up with further success. Later that day, Wilbur spent almost a whole minute in the air, travelling 260 metres before coming to a rough but ultimately safe landing. The Wright Flyer was extremely difficult to control, and the Wright brothers were the only ones who were able to manage it, thanks to the years of practice that they'd had with gliders. But even so, they'd done it. They had done it undoubtedly. Maybe Whitehead beat them, maybe he didn't, but it is impossible to deny that in December 1903, the Wright brothers did indeed take to the air in a powered, heavier-than-air aircraft. And if they were the first, as so many people believe, 
They propelled humanity into the age of flight. The Wright brothers continued to work on their aircraft, designing the Flyer 2 and then the Flyer 3, which had some significant alterations made to its design that made it more stable and practical. The Flyer 3 was able to spend minutes, not seconds, in the air. In 1905, the Flyer 3 flew for almost 40 minutes, covering almost 40 kilometres, and then landing back where it launched from. So we are off and away. There is no doubt about it. Even if there is still some controversy about priority, you can't deny that the Wright brothers were still a massive part of getting us into the air properly. There's a lot more going on with the story of the Wright brothers. Um, Honestly, it, it might be worth coming back to look at them for a full episode themselves. But for now, we will leave them. We'll move on into the opening years of the 20th century, which are known in the world of aviation as the pioneer era. As more and more people in North America and Europe worked to refine and improve aircraft design through continued experimentation. The first officially verified heavier-than-air flight to take place in Europe was on the 13th of September 1906, when Brazilian inventor Alberto Santos Dumont flew a rudimentary biplane for 60 metres in Paris. There may have been others uh, that took place before this, but this one was carried out in front of a huge crowd and is very well documented, uh, while other claims, again, are a little bit sparse on evidence. Santos Dumont uh, improved his design, and by 1907, he designed a monoplane that could fly at up to, if you'll believe this, 120 kilometres per hour, an absolutely blistering pace, faster than a car on a highway. But then... In 1908, Wilbur Wright visited France and he brought with him some aircraft and absolutely knocked the socks off the French aviators who were watching. People like Santos Dumont had built pretty nifty planes, but the Wright brothers by now, they had aircraft that was, it has to be said, just a whole lot better. More stable, easy to control, able to perform tight, controlled turns thanks to the steering mechanisms that the Wright brothers had designed. Wilbur Wright's flight demonstrations rather obviously had a strong influence on aeroplanes in Europe, uh, with aviation engineers and inventors adapting their designs to incorporate some of the innovations of the Wright brothers. And so planes everywhere were just getting better and better and better. And it was around this time that flight really took off, I guess you could say, as more than just a weird obsessive hobby for weird obsessive people. People began to realise and recognise the potential that flight had, what impact it might have on human civilization. The fact that this technology might actually change the world in an enormously significant way. And they were right. As more aviation milestones were broken, flight only took a larger and larger place in human civilization. In 1909, French aviator and moustache enthusiast Louis Blériot bagged the £1,000 prize that had been posted by the British Daily Mail newspaper for the first flight across the English Channel. And just to give you an idea of how quickly the industry developed, within a few years in 1913, the world's first scheduled passenger airline was founded, the St. Petersburg-Tampa Airboat Line. And with startling prescience... American aviator Thomas Benoist, the bloke who sometimes designed planes for the line, he was quoted as saying, Someday, people will be crossing oceans on airliners like they do on steamships today. As we move out of the pioneer era of aviation, it won't surprise you to learn that the next major developments in aviation went hand in hand with the next major developments in world affairs, namely, of course, the First World War. 
aeroplanes became increasingly militarised once the war got underway. But interestingly, the First World War wasn't the first conflict in which planes were used in warfare. No, that was actually the Italian-Turkish War taking place in 1911 and 1912 uh, when they were used by Italy, firstly for reconnaissance and then for a bit of bombing. And similarly, Bulgaria used planes to reconnoitre the Ottomans during the First Balkan War of 1912 and 1913. But it was the First World War when the military use of planes really came into its own as the first large-scale conflict to feature aircraft. Now, interestingly, to begin with, military leaders were quite sceptical about how useful planes might even be in a war. Uh, But when they realised how quickly scout cavalry was becoming obsolete in the face of of modern firearms, planes were enthusiastically put to use for reconnaissance. Early in the war, very small bombing payloads, they were sent up in aircraft as well. But planes were mainly used for recon because, I mean, they just weren't very effective as bombers. Not only could these planes not really carry all that much weight, They didn't have bomb sites to actually aim, so tactical bombing was out of the question, and strategic bombing wasn't much better because you just couldn't take very many bombs up in the plane, and those you could take, you couldn't aim all that well. But as the war continued, military powers on both sides investigated how they could incorporate weaponry into aircraft, both both bombs and guns, Um, and we'll talk about how guns were incorporated into into early planes here, so as to shoot down enemy planes, uh, because it's very, very interesting. To begin with, right, enemy pilots on recon missions that ran into each other usually didn't do anything more than just sort of smile and wave at each other as they flew past. But obviously the top brass weren't, weren't having that, absolutely not. So pilots started taking up pistols and grenades with them, right, with orders to bring down opposing planes by shooting them, by leaning out of the plane and shooting them with a handheld pistol or just chucking a grenade. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine chucking a grenade while flying an aeroplane at an enemy plane that's flying past you? You need to send. You need to start sending up bloody cricket and baseball players to make sure they could actually hit the target. Um, also, while we're talking about uh, while we're talking about pistols and grenades, the first ever recorded instance of one plane bringing down another was on the eighth of September, nineteen fourteen. And interestingly, and quite hilariously, it was not with a gun or even a grenade. No, instead, a Russian pilot rammed an Austrian plane flying over Galicia in what is today Poland and Ukraine and managed to bring it down in this way. And the Russian pilot secured another kill with this manoeuvre, although it was probably not one that he was expecting or hoping for. You perhaps will not be surprised to learn that when he rammed his plane into the enemy, he too went down in flames and died, just like the poor Austrian pilot. Clearly, a better solution was needed. You couldn't have pilots hanging out the side of the plane shooting with a pistol or, or better yet, playing bloody dodgem cars up in the sky. So no, the focus was put on finding a way to fire a machine gun from a plane. The only problem was that to fire a machine gun forward, you would aim the gun straight into the propeller, the thing that is, you know, keeping the plane in the air. Initially, propeller designs were altered. They were made thinner to make it less likely that bullets would strike them. I'm sure that was a huge relief to the pilots. Uh, The French added deflectors to some of their plane's propellers. Uh, These deflectors were designed to have bullets ricochet off them uh, instead of going 
through the propeller blade, and some pilots found this to be reasonably effective. One such pilot benefited from this innovation in bringing down several German planes. Uh, he was the first pilot to shoot down an enemy plane with a forward-facing fixed machine gun that you aimed by actually just steering the plane. But he was also eventually shot down himself, and uh, while he survived this ordeal, he didn't manage to destroy his plane, and so the Germans discovered this deflector design as well. And that pilot's name, you are never going to guess. You may have heard of this bloke before. His name was Roland Garros, the fellow for whom the French Tennis Open is named. Don't think he ever played tennis. They just named a stadium and a tennis championship after him because he was a World War I flying ace. Anyway, eventually the Germans designed a mechanism that synchronised the bullets being t- being fired in time with the propeller. They didn't need the deflector at all because they had a way to make sure that the bullet would pass between the blades as they span. Pretty clever piece of, uh, of kit here. And this led to the creation of the Fokker E1, the first fighter plane to be equipped with the synchronisation technology and something that gave Germany a huge edge in aerial combat as their pilots weren't, you know, shooting their own propellers. Uh, the Allies scrambled to build planes that could go up against the uh, the Fokker E1 and its subsequent designs, the E2 and the E3. And as the war continued, aerial combat became a bigger and bigger part of the overall conflict. Pilots were seen almost like medieval knights going off into dangerous, blistering combat against other pilots, bringing home glory and honour as they jousted in the skies and, and sought victory. Uh, and some pilots, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, went on to become enormously famous heroes. The best example of this is Manfred von Richthofen, the, the Red Baron, the German ace who brought down no fewer than 80 Allied planes and was hailed as a living legend in Germany, as well as a well-respected and very feared foe in both Britain and France. But here's something really, really interesting about the planes flown during the First World War, something that might surprise you, something that's kind of been lost in the shuffle as we conceptualise and imagine what these planes might have looked like. Believe it or not, most of the planes flown in the First World War were made of wood, wood and cloth. These were wooden aircraft. They were Making a plane out of metal at this point in history was out of the question. Steel and iron were way too heavy to get into the air. You might as well try to make them out of rock. So these planes, to put it mildly, weren't the most durable aircraft. Far from it, in fact. While some models incorporated metal elements into their frameworks or fuselages, the only way these planes could be made light enough to fly is by building them mostly out of wood. Anyway, there is so much more we could talk about here with aviation during the First World War. We could talk about how air superiority became... Uh, more and more important for both sides as the war continued. We could talk about how aircraft became more specialised. We could talk about the fortunes of both sides of the war, how they waxed and waned as time went on. But we'd be here all day. And the bottom line is this. The First World War saw air combat become an irreversibly important part of warfare, something that really just hasn't changed to this very day. And while the dogfighting and the air battles and the flying aces and whatever else were exciting and receive a lot of attention, the biggest impact that flight had on the First World War was actually in very different areas, in recon, in intelligence gathering, in tactical bombing. The stalemates in the trenches below meant that aeroplanes were critical in gathering information about enemy positions, enemy numbers, 
Uh, and this intelligence allowed pinpointed artillery strikes. Artillery was perhaps the most devastatingly effective type of weapon in the First World War. It was the centerpiece of many successful operations for both sides. And so the gathering of information, of positions, numbers, the, 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 the recon that these planes were able to carry out meant that artillery could be even more effective uh, thanks to the accuracy with, with which these massive guns could be fired. Uh, in addition to recon, uh, planes were also flown to perform bombing runs that targeted supply depots behind enemy lines. And this disrupted enemies as they attempted to hold their fronts. Not a very exciting role, really. Not as exciting as the Red Baron and his 80 kills or the French Colonel René Fonck and his 72 kills for the Allies. But... It was still a very big part of the war, a very important role played by aircraft in what was essentially their debut on the global stage of international conflict. And finally, something that is often overlooked as part of the history of the First World War, the Germans undeniably won the war in the air, at least from a numbers perspective. Check this out. Germany lost just under 28,000 planes in the First World War. And you might think that's a lot, certainly is. But this is compared to well over 88,000 planes lost by the Allies. So the Germans definitely won the war in the skies, but they lost the war on the ground. And that's all that ended up mattering. So that was that. But the end of the war didn't slow down the advancement of aviation. It did, however, mean a change in focus from military to civilian use of aircraft. Aircraft design developed and improved very rapidly and in a number of very important ways. Uh, firstly, planes began to be made out of metal rather than wood and cloth. And this is because in the 20s and 30s, it became practical to manufacture planes from strong but lightweight metals, mainly alloys of aluminium, and secondly, uh, most First World War planes were biplanes, right? Two sets of wings stacked on top of each other. But uh, in the interwar period, biplanes gave way to monoplanes, planes with just one set of wings. And that obviously has set the standard. And most aeroplanes these days overwhelmingly are built with just one set of wings. As we've said over and over again, plane design just continue to improve and improve. They were faster, sleeker, more powerful, more durable, and could fly for longer and longer periods. And as you might expect... Building these machines out of metal rather than wooden cloth only made them better at what they did, flying quickly and safely and for longer and longer distances. In addition to these changes to long-standing and fundamental aspects of aeroplane design, a number of new additions were made to aeroplanes that modernised them more than ever before. By the mid-30s, planes had things like enclosed cockpits, retractable landing gear, variable pitch propellers to give pilots more control over the aircraft, and cantilever wings, wings that don't have supports. They just stick out from the side of the aircraft without struts or braces. But what's really interesting about aviation in this period, it's not just the planes, but it's also the people involved. All of these flying aces that now didn't have a water fight, they started to show off their considerable skill in the cockpit at air shows instead. Ex-combat pilots, the ones that survived the war, they would travel around and, perf and perform tricks and stunts to amuse and entertain crowds, uh, bringing first-hand experience of the thrills of aviation to people who had, in some cases, never seen aeroplanes before. 
This is often called barnstorming. These aerial shows were particularly popular, popular in the US, travelled around the country to show off feats of daring and danger to rapturous crowds. And this in turn helped to breed a new generation of aviation pioneers, such as, of course, Amelia Earhart, episode 218, Get Across It. And these aviation pioneers pushed the boundaries of what was possible with ever-improving aircraft designs by breaking more and more aviation milestones. Things like flying across the Atlantic or even around the world. People like Earhart, Alcock and Brown, Sir Charles Kingford Smith and, of course, the detestable Charles Lindbergh. These are the people who paved the way for long-distance commercial air travel. Runways and airfields were built in more and more places. Planes became a much more common sight in many cities around the world. 20 or 30 years ago, by contrast, aeroplanes had been a rarity, an oddity, a weird and dangerous contraption defying the natural order of things. But now, the age of widespread commercial aviation was on its way, and planes could hold as many as 10 whole passengers if you'll believe it. And look, yes, it doesn't sound like much in today's world where you can fit 800 and something passengers onto an Airbus A380, but think about this in relative terms. You know, it's almost 100 years ago, 10 people being put onto a single aeroplane is quite, quite a significant milestone to have achieved. And this number only grew, obviously, of course, throughout the 1930s, airliners began to be made of metal, the Boeing 247, the Douglas DC-3. The Douglas DC-3 could carry up to 32 people, imagine that. And commercial air travel was on its way. It began during this interwar period, but it wasn't until after the Second World War that the industry really came into its own. Uh, and for that reason, despite there being so much more to talk about with commercial aviation, we'll come back to it next week. We'll talk about the post-war build-up of passenger fleets and how air travel became more and more widespread and more and more accessible than ever before. But there is one Final aspect of commercial aviation that I want to get across here and now to wrap up this week's episode, because we won't have the chance next week, as this type of aircraft was just largely not a thing after the Second World War. If you could go back 100 years and talk to someone about their thoughts on commercial aviation, on public access to travel by air, there is a good chance that they might have told you that the future of air travel was not in aeroplanes, but in airships, in airships, in dirigibles, zeppelins, blimps, aerostats, and whatever else, these vessels went through something of a golden age in the period after the First World War. One last hurrah for lighter-than-air aviation. Before the war, a German fellow named Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin invented the rigid airship, often known as the Zeppelin, uh, and these rigid airships were a big improvement over existing non-rigid designs. They were faster, sturdier, stronger. Zeppelins were even used during the war on bombing runs. Uh, but after the war, they became used for, yes indeed, commercial aviation, for travel. Airships sailed over the Atlantic long before aeroplanes. Uh, and as we talked about in episode 242, Get Across It, the semi-rigid airship Nurga was the first to fly over the North Pole in 1926. Airships, like aeroplanes, became bigger, faster, and more grandiose than ever. This was a rapidly developing area of technology, one that captured the interest of thousands of people around the world. And while the US had fallen a little behind in aviation due to the advances of the European powers fighting the, uh, the First World War, the Americans made a powerful return to the world stage in the golden age of airships. And this was for one very simple reason. Back then, 
the US had the world's only sources of helium, and they refused to sell it to anyone else. As a result, US-built airships were safer, much safer than any others anywhere else, because helium, unlike hydrogen, isn't flammable. Other nations had to stick with hydrogen or other flammable gases in order to get their airships off the ground, which ended up, of course, with, well, we'll get to it. I know I've been teasing this for a long time, but it is coming. In 1923, the very first US-built rigid airship was launched, the USS Shenandoah. And the Shenandoah had in it the overwhelming majority of all the world's helium. Almost every single scrap of helium that had ever been collected by humans ever throughout all of history was all inside the Shenandoah. These days, we'll fill up party balloons with helium and think nothing of it. But back then, 100 years ago, almost all the helium that we had access to as a species was inside one single airship. How about that? Anyway, airships were a big part of aviation between the world wars. They were seen by many as the future of aviation. And if you doubt that claim, let me tell you this. When New York's Empire State Building was completed in 1931, it was the tallest building in the world at that point, it had on it a mast for airships to dock on. It was assumed that airships would become a primary mode of passenger aviation, and New York wanted to be ready for this. But of course, aviation left the airship behind. And there is a simple enough reason for this, one that you're probably familiar with. I've been making reference to it both this week and last week, and I am, of course, talking about the famous Hindenburg disaster. While attempting to land in Lakehurst in New Jersey in the United States on the 6th of May 1937, the German airship Hindenburg, a massive rigid airship, the largest ever built by volume, went up in flames as the hydrogen inside it ignited, killing all 36 people aboard it. Even today, historians argue about exactly why the airship caught fire, but one thing is certain – The destruction of the airship was swift and it was horrible, as hydrogen is very enthusiastically flammable. And of course, the accident was made all the more famous due to the fact that an eyewitness, Herbert Morrison, recorded an account of the Hindenburg's attempted landing and subsequent conflagration, which contained what is now an extremely famous quotation. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, cracked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship, but just holding it, uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started, get it started. It's right, and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning pass, and all the folks between us, this is terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, it's, it's like 20, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flames crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the fans are screaming around it. I told you, I can't even talk to people. The fans are out there. It's a, it's, it's a, oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honestly, just laying down mass and smoking wreckage. And everybody can hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside while I cannot see it. Darling, that's terrible. 
I can't. I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. The Hindenburg wasn't the first airship catastrophe, but it would be one of the last. The lack of safety when it came to airships finally caught up with them and public opinion turned in the wake of the Hindenburg. And this disaster marks the end of the golden age of airships. The mast on the Empire State Building was never used, not even once. And by the time the Second World War had arrived, airships were largely considered completely obsolete. And these days... They're not used for much more than aerial shots in sports broadcasting, although technically, if you want a bit of a well-actually to use on people, everyone loves a well-actually, the Goodyear blimps aren't actually blimps, as they are instead semi-rigid airships, and the term blimp actually only refers to a non-rigid airship, so they're actually the Goodyear semi-rigid airships. You will be Such fun at parties with that little fact. Anyway, with the Second World War looming on the horizon and the next generation of aviation development and technology approaching, now is unfortunately where we will have to draw a line under what we've talked about today. I hate to do it to you, but we have so much more to talk about and I don't want to do the last part of this story a disservice by cramming it into the end of this episode. No, instead, next week we will come back for another in-depth rundown of the history of flight, this time focusing on the last 80 years, from the Second World War right through to the 21st century. I'm looking forward to your company then as we get across everything from the role that aeroplanes played in the Second World War to breaking the sound barrier in an aeroplane to the development and deployment of the jet engine to the widespread growth of commercial air travel and its consequences for human civilization to finally flying aircraft on another planet. I know I promised all this last week, but I'm good for it next week. I will be there and I'll see you then. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the second part of our overview of the history of flight. We'll be back with Chapter 3 next week. Until then, all the boring housekeeping stuff, starting off with a quick merch update. There are two new pieces of merch available in the shop for your viewing pleasure, and hopefully for your purchasing pleasure as well. One featuring Diogenes, Episode 89. Get across it, everyone's favourite barrel-dwelling cynic. Uh, You can get him on a T-shirt or... Uh, There's another one, a pirate-related one, with uh, Edward Teach, Blackbeard. Uh, So if you want to grab yourself some Half-Us History merch, head to halfhousehistory.net. Make sure that you follow the referral link there. It's the only way that the show gets paid from those purchases. Uh, And while you're at halfhousehistory.net, use the contact form to get in touch if you feel like it. It has been so good to hear from alert listeners all around the world, Uh, particularly enjoying hearing from new listeners at the moment telling me how they came across the show. Did a friend tell you about the show? Did an enemy tell you about the show? Did someone who largely feels ambivalent about you tell you about Half House History? Or did it crop up in Spotify recommendations? I'd love to hear how you're, uh, you're discovering the show. It is always so good to hear from people who are listening in. Uh, So thank you, listeners, old and new alike. And a special thank you, of course, to the supporters on Patreon. Now, if you're one of the people who just can't wait to get your hands on episodes like these, uh, I can tell you that patreon.com slash history is the place to go because you get early access to shows, including part three, which by the time that you're listening to this is already up and available on the Patreon, exclusive for patrons only, in addition to things like patron-only merch, show notes, uncut episodes, all sorts of stuff there. It's a great way to support the show, and I very, very much appreciate the people who do it. Ad-free listening, of course, included at every tier. 
uh, at the at the Patreon there. Anyway, going to close out the show here, wrap it up as we always do with a question posed on Reddit. Thank you so much for listening. Back here next week for the uh, for the third and final part of our history of flight. Until then, question posed by Robert LC who asks. <clears throat> How did early investors in powered flight know if they were backing the right brothers? (laughs) 